This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guests are Peter Bauman and Michael Taft. Peter began his career as a member of the internationally acclaimed 1970s band Tangerine Dream and later founded the private music record label and has assembled a top-notch interdisciplinary think tank, the San Francisco-based Bauman Foundation, to explore what it means to be fully human. Michael Taft is a serious student of evolution and the capacities of the human brain. A professional researcher and writer for more than two decades, Michael is fascinated by what neuroscience, biology, psychology, archaeology, and technology can tell us about the human condition. With Natural Enlightenment Press, which is distributed by Sounds True, Peter and Michael have co-written the book Ego, The Fall of the Twin Towers and the Rise of an Enlightened Humanity. In this pioneering book, Peter and Michael explore the positive evolutionary potential of this particular time in human history. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Peter, Michael, and I spoke about the conceptual revolution that took place 50,000 years ago and the conscious or enlightenment revolution that could be happening right now. We also talked about new research that points to the emotions as mostly physical, not mental, phenomenon, and the ego as a concept and a function versus being a solid entity and how that changes the way we live and relate to others. Here's my conversation with Peter Bauman and Michael Taft. To begin with, Peter, I want to talk about the big picture of the book Ego, the big view that you're communicating here in this book. And as I was reading the book, for me, where it began is that through your study, research, inquiry, you're working with a think tank of people, what you discovered was that 50,000 years ago, a shift took place that you're calling in the book a conceptual revolution for humankind. And I want to start by talking about what that shift was, in your view, that happened and where it's taken us. Well, yes, uh, happy to talk about that. And uh, in the big picture, um, you know, we go about our daily lives and uh, we orient ourselves in what we know and how we move about uh, in our current uh, environment. Um, but if you take a step back, uh, it's pretty interesting to observe that uh, human uh, beings uh, have been evolving for quite a while and that possibly the process is not completed. Uh, and that there have been a major shift uh, in, uh, in our evolution as a species. And uh, the one that you're referring to, the conceptual revolution, happened about uh, 50,000 years ago. Uh, and uh, it's indicated by uh, paint uh, drawings and by complex tools uh, and so on and so forth. Um, until about 50,000 years ago, 
basically human beings only had one tool, and that was a stone axe. And suddenly there was this explosion in complexity in human life. And uh, most anthropologists uh, and evolutionaries attribute that to a capacity that emerged in human beings, and that's the capacity to conceptualize. Uh, what that means is that we are able to uh, generate mental images of objects in our environment and displace them. We can displace them in, in space and time, so we can imagine. And uh, with imagination, uh, extraordinary things are possible. You can see a stone and a stick and say, oh, if I put them together, then I have more leverage, and it becomes a complex tool. And it was really the beginning, uh, the very early beginnings of uh, human civilization. Uh, so it was a significant threshold uh, in the evolution of our species. And so one of the things I read in Ego was that there was an actual thinning of the human skull that's been discovered that happened around that time, that our brains actually changed, the physiology of our brains changed along with this capacity to imagine. So what caused that? What catalyzed that? Well, there, there are a couple of different theories around, uh, you know, and, and specifically, uh, you know, there were uh, changes in, uh, in our climate, uh, and uh, we discovered how to uh, hunt animals and, and fish and have a higher protein diet, and that uh, uh, helped us uh, develop larger brains and uh, possibly that helped us uh, to develop the capacity for conceptualization. Uh, but this is, uh, it's not well known exactly what caused what. Uh, the significant uh, aspect is really that we are able to uh, imagine uh, things that did not exist in our immediate environment. Okay, and now the real point that I think the book is driving at is that currently, right now, we're going through a similar shift. The book refers to this shift as the conscious revolution or the enlightenment revolution, that there's a shift happening now that could have a similarly deep change in our society and for individuals. Talk about that. What's happening right now? Well, um, yeah, happy to talk about it. And it is, in essence, a uh, quite a uh, positive perspective on further human development. Uh, um, just to backtrack a little bit, the capacity to conceptualize really was phenomenally uh, important uh, for civilization. I mean, it brought us forth uh, writing and, and culture and uh, complex tools, thinking, technology. All of that was only possible with conceptualization. And our culture emphasized, uh, you know, being smart and, and, and really using our brains that way more and more. And we kind of uh, removed ourselves from a direct lived experience. Uh, and, and we lived more and more in our heads, so to say. Our intention, uh, attention was more focused on ideas and concepts rather than how we felt in our lived environment. And uh, we're proposing that uh, a lot of uh, human suffering and the sense of alienation uh, can be uh, led back to uh, that specific issue that we are trapped in our mind, uh, trapped in our mind and specifically identifying with a self-concept uh, and, and really feeling isolated from our senses and isolated from our natural environment. 
and uh, that we are, uh, but that the process of human evolution is continuing, and that part of that process is that we are becoming consciously aware uh, of feeling isolated and feeling uh, completely uh, alienated from our natural environment, uh, and uh, with enhanced uh, conscious awareness. Uh, we are starting to transcend identification with our mental self-concept and finding a way uh, more as a process within a larger process rather than a thing being separate from other things. Uh, so that, that the lived experience is becoming more of a process that is embedded in culture and that is embedded in, human, uh, in the human species and in the universe at large. Okay, and then this shift into conscious awareness where we see the ego for what it is, we recognize it, we can be aware of it, is that accompanied by some change now in our brain that could be compared to the thinning of the skull that happened 50,000 years ago? Well, uh, we don't know. I mean, there has been a lot of uh, research going on into understanding uh, mental concepts and self-identification. And, uh, of course, the wisdom traditions have been talking about no self uh, for over 2,500 years. So the issue is not new. But uh, what is new is that neurosciences really supports the idea that there is no distinct, uh, separate uh, self homunculus inside our skull. Uh, but uh, specifically, why and how uh, that evolution uh, towards... Uh, bigger and broader perspective is uh, occurring, we don't know. Uh, but, I mean, you can simply look around and see that as a culture we're becoming uh, much more consciously aware. Uh, a couple of hundred years ago, uh, you know, it was just a given that uh, women, you know, were inferior and uh, civil rights were just trampled on. Uh, we were just not attuned to other human beings. We were living kind of in a separate world of ideas that we're disconnected of, uh, with empathy uh, and, and really sensing where other human beings were at. Of course, you had exceptions, but uh, the general uh, culture uh, was based on domination. And uh, there's clearly a shift going on. There is, is much more focus and a sensitivity towards uh, uh, other voices and towards uh, egalitarianism uh, that just started like in the last hundred years. Now, it's interesting because, of course, many people have been talking about a shift that they see individuals in the world going through and from lots of different directions. But what seems unique about the book Ego is this analysis of the shift from an evolutionary perspective. And so talk more about why you think it might be, in evolutionary terms, time for this shift towards conscious awareness to be happening? Well, the way evolution works is uh, with opportunity and threats. Uh, whenever there's an opportunity, it expands, and when there's a threat, it contracts. And clearly, we're living in an environment today that feels like we are hamstrung. There is very little joy and movement, and uh, we're kind of hitting a wall uh, there was tremendous process, progress uh, over the last few hundred years technologically, and we've conquered a lot of diseases and so on and so forth. But uh, there's, there's a price, price that we paid for that. 
And uh, my proposal and, and what uh, Michael and I suggest in the book is that there is an expanded perspective on who we are as human beings that cannot be seen from a conceptual perspective. You cannot imagine how it feels to uh, relate to the world uh, in a sensory way. That is an experience. And experiences cannot be conceptualized. Uh, but the magnitude of the shift that appears to be going on in individuals and in culture at large is as significant, we propose, as uh, the one that happened during the uh, concept conceptual revolution. One of my observations as I was reading Ego is that this is a book that couldn't have been written 40, 50 years ago, that we've needed some of the discoveries that neuroscience and other scientific forms of inquiry have made in the last few decades in order for you to really come up with this viewpoint. And I'm wondering if you think that's true. And if it is, what discoveries have been made in the last few decades that have really informed your viewpoint? Well, the discoveries have been made really on a whole uh, range of uh, uh, science, uh, sciences. You have the hard sciences and the soft sciences. Uh, the soft sciences being the humanities, psychology, and uh, the hard sciences being, uh, you know, the physical science and neuroscience. And uh, across the board, uh, the hard sciences clearly cannot locate a particular self in the brain. Uh, it appears that uh, we generate a sense of self through neural networks uh, that give rise to the sense of being someone. Uh, and uh, psychologically, we understand um, that depression is largely rooted in the fact that we do not feel ourselves being integrated in a larger group, uh, and that uh, we really are uh, half of our uh, lived experience is determined by our relationship to other people. Uh, and if those are not fully uh, developed, then uh, there's a diminishment in our quality of life. Uh, and that hints clearly that uh, it's an integrated process. Uh, individual human beings are uh, as much as a culture as culture influences human beings. Okay, so that's some of the discoveries from the soft science side. Do you want to say something from the hard science side? Well, as I said earlier, the, the hard sciences, uh, it, uh, you know, and this is mostly through brain imaging, uh, demonstrate that a sense of self is really arising out of neural networks. When certain neurons fire in synchronicity, uh, then there arises a sense of self and a, a sense of uh, being someone. Uh, but that's not located in any particular part of the brain, but it's distributed throughout the brain. And that our emotional uh, and, and bodily sensations actually feed into these neural networks. Uh, and it really underlines uh, the uh, assertion that no uh, separate entity exists in the brain. No, uh, the ego is not per se a thing, uh, but it is a function of the brain. It's a function that helps us coordinate our lives. Uh, it keeps track of our autobiographical events, uh, and it helps us uh, facilitate complex behavior. But uh, it, it's the sense of me that we experience is, is literally uh, something that is generated by the neurons, and it's not a thing that, uh, you know, is in charge. And one of the points in ego is that this 
optical illusion of the ego has played an evolutionary function over the last 50,000 years, and that's why it's benefited us to have this optical illusion. Can you talk a little bit about that? How has it benefited us? I mean, people usually associate with the ego, oh, that person's, you know, self-centered or kind of a jerk or focused only on themselves first or self-obsessed or whatever. Uh, Well, very simply, um, if you have an image of yourself as an organism in your mind, you can displace it in time and place. So you can imagine yourself, um, you know, in a different situation, and you can evaluate whether that's a good or a bad situation. For instance, if you go on a long trip through the desert, you can imagine, hey, if I don't have water, then I'm probably going to run into trouble. Uh, the same way you can imagine, uh, you know, to build a shelter for the winter that's much more stable than, you know, just a couple of branches uh, leaned against each other. Uh, you can plan for, uh, you know, food that lasts you for a prolonged period of time. Uh, you can plan for your, uh, you know, retirement. Uh, you can, you know, it's every complex tool involves planning. And, and we plan in order to expand our sphere of safety so that we, we as individual organisms feel safer in the future. Uh, so it was very beneficial uh, uh, to develop a mental uh, concept of ourselves that we could transplant into different situations and feel whether that would be a good or a bad situation. And then part of what you're hypothesizing now is that we can still have these beneficial functions of the ego, but not identify and take it so seriously. If that's the case, what do you imagine human society might look like in the coming decades, centuries, as more and more people participate in this conscious revolution? Well, I I would propose that uh, as beneficial as the uh, evolution of the ego function was, uh, you know, clearly there uh, are diminished returns. And today uh, we're kind of hyper-focused on trying to secure our safety and prevent any potential threat. Uh, and the price we pay is that our attention is trapped in that and it's really not uh, available to sense, uh, you know, how we feel and how we relate to other people in depth. Uh, and the change, I think, that's going to occur is that we will realize uh, the limitations of ego identification, and uh, that we will start to take things less personal. So uh, whether it's an insult or whether some mishap happens, it's not something that uh, is personal, but it's simply an event that happens, and, and we will not say, well, I'm a, I'm a bad person or I'm a great person. The, the, uh, the sense of winning or losing will diminish, and we will sense that we are part of a larger process, uh, primarily our families and our culture. And we will uh, be more interested that the culture as a whole flourishes. And it's less of a competition, but more of a co- cooperative uh, focus. May it be so. Now, Peter, <laughs> I'd like to ask you a couple questions of how you came to have this deep interest in this topic of evolutionary development and the ego itself. I mean, in reading your bio, here you are in your late 40s asking a question. I have 
10,000 days, let's say, left to live, how can I make the most of them? So how did asking that question lead to this study of the ego? Uh, Tell me, let me let me say that uh, address that in, in a second. I just want to backtrack when you said, uh, "May it be so," and uh, I'm going to point out that actually a lot of it is so already. If you look at new corporations that are emerging now, whether it's Google, you know, or whether it's Facebook, they function in quite a different way. There's much more an integration on all levels of the organization that cooperate. If you go back to an old uh, Exxon Corporation or the old Rockefellers or the Steel Barons, there was a complete stiff hierarchy, a dominance hierarchy. And those dominance hierarchies are really starting to fall apart. And new corporations function much more integrative than ever before. So that shift is already actually occurring. Um, So, uh, you know, I'm I'm not uh, a pure optimist trying to imagine a better future, but I I believe that a lot of what we're saying in the book is rooted in uh, things that are actually observable, and and that includes, you know, the the uprising uh, in the Middle East against dominance hierarchy. So, um, anyway, I just wanted to make that point. Sure. Well, I think the may it be so where it comes from is just to talk about it a little bit more. And we're going to get back to 10,000 days left, but just a moment, which is, yes, we can see evidence for positive shifts of human collaboration all over the place at an increasing rate, but we also still experience ourselves on the brink of extinction as a species. And so may it be so, will this conscious revolution happen at a pervasive enough level quickly enough that there'll really be a shift into the next centuries. I mean, I think the word would be still out on on whether or not that positive shift will occur or not. Uh, That's correct, Tammy. And, you know, we do live in a very uncertain universe, uh, and we're clamoring for safety and certainty, but uh, we're, we're just in the wrong place. Uh, You can look at the universe at large, and if it had just a little bit more mass, it would instantly collapse, or a little less mass, it would instantly fly fly apart. If we had a little bit less oxygen, we couldn't breathe. A little bit more, we would starve, you know? So the the range in which life happens has always been very, very thin. And I would propose that uh, that's probably going to be the same case in the future, and that it's a 51-49 chance that we'll actually make it. Uh, but I think there's better than 50% chance that we will make it. Once again, may it be so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Peter. So I want to know about you. And here you are. You're in your late 40s. You have a successful career behind you as a musician running a record label. And you're starting to ask some deep questions about your life. All of this is a precursor to the research and writing of the book Ego. So tell me about that and how it brought you to this central theory of evolutionary development. Well, first off, I have to say that I didn't ask any deep questions. Uh, uh, Actually, it was a pretty lightweight question. Uh, It was in my late 40s when one morning I woke up and realized I have 10,000 days left to live. That's the average life expectancy in your late 40s for, uh, for a male. Uh, and I said, well, how am I going to spend that time? Uh, you know, I had uh, pretty good success. I was in a, in a great uh, relationship and had really no 
uh, you know, urgent issues that uh, I had to deal with. And uh, given the fact that I had 10,000 days to live, um, I started to to investigate what what makes a life that's uh, fulfilling, uh, that's satisfying, uh, and that's productive. So I started to uh, say anything's on the table. I went into the deep wisdom traditions, uh, into New Age spirituality, uh, and then into the soft and hard sciences, into genetics and neurosciences, and into psychology and happiness set points and all of that together. And uh, it took me about five years uh, when I realized that there are pretty, uh, pretty clear patterns that emerge. Uh, one that is more important actually than any other, and that's uh, how do we make decisions? And when I realized that decisions are uh, always driven by the desire to uh, have a pleasant, positive outcome and avoid a negative one, uh, and uh, with pain and pleasure, that's pretty obvious, but that's also true for higher emotions and behavior. We want to be liked uh, in a group. Uh, we we want to avoid being rejected. Uh, you know, we want to be accepted. And all our behavior centers around that. And I realized that emotions and feelings really evolve to indicate whether we are succeeding and doing something positive for us as individual organisms or whether we're uh, treacherous close to some threats. And, and when that became uh, clear, the next step was that that happened not only when I was experiencing something in the immediate environment, but also when I thought about something, when I thought about succeeding at getting another gold record, or uh, thought about somebody panning the next record and I wouldn't sell well, and that generated emotions as well. And, and then, uh, with what I learned from science, uh, it was pretty obvious that what happened was that I had imaginations and I was fantasizing about a positive or a negative a potential future. And uh, at the center of that imagination was a concept of myself, and that's really the ego and the ego function. And, and that happens all day long, but it happens mostly blind. Uh, you know, unaware of this process, we are trapped uh, constantly trying to imagine a better future and avoiding a, a worse one. Uh, so it was really a whole series of logical and theoretical perspectives on this, uh, but more profound as I, I really understood that from a, a conceptual perspective, uh, a, a shift happened internally that was very, very visceral. I remember clearly one evening, it was, uh, I think, uh, 2006, I was sitting in our living room, and I was reading and writing, and I just jumped out of my chair, and I told my wife, I got it. I don't exist. And it was just a flash of lightning uh, that, my God, I'm making it all up. The me that I'm running around with, the me that I think I am, is nothing else but generated in my mind to function in complex environments. And it had a real profound impact on how I felt physically. It was like a big rock was uh, thrown off of my shoulders, and there was a, a lightness and an ease that followed from that uh, that really uh, was quite liberating. Yeah, let's talk about that. I don't exist. So the concept of yourself is what you discovered didn't exist. 
That's correct. I mean, obviously, I exist as an individual living organism, but the me or the Peter uh, is a concept made up in the mind. When you, and the same is true, for instance, if you look at society. You cannot point towards society. Society is a concept, and we use it, and American is a concept. You know, we, we generate these concepts to organize our world, and we use a self-concept to organize our individual world. But it still is just a concept uh, that is a placeholder to organize your world around it. But it has no substantial existence in and of itself. So after this moment where you saw this, did you start to recognize changes in the quality of your life? Uh, yes, I mean, quite dramatically. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough that I always had a pretty uh, happy predisposition, but uh, in, in stages and uh, in, in different degrees, uh, from then on, it seemed that, uh, you know, I, I took things less and less personal, and when mishaps happened, it was more funny than dramatic. Uh, and unless there was any imminent physical threat or danger to myself or anybody close to me, uh, you know, all other events lost their uh, significance. You know, so, uh, you know, when I was accepted or rejected somebody somewhere, if somebody liked me or not, it became far less significant. If I embarrassed myself, that was more funny than anything. Uh, when I was guilty, it was, when I felt guilty, it was more like a curious sensation that I can learn from rather than, oh, I'm a bad person, I did something wrong. So the relationship to all the emotions and sensations that I experienced uh, took on a very different and much lighter tone. After that moment, sounds a little bit like a, a lightning strikes moment. When you would see the ego rise and take hold of a situation, would that still happen to you, but you would have conscious awareness? Oh, that's the identification with the self-concept coming on the scene. Absolutely. I mean, it happens all the time. You know, it's uh, and, and, you know, I still do silly stuff that I get embarrassed. I can feel the sensation of embarrassment. But how I relate to it internally is the way that it can dissolve much easier. There's no hanging on to it or, uh, you know, ruminating about it. Uh, so, yes, of course. I mean, the ego is there constantly, uh, and uh, it is uh, more seen as a function and, and like, uh, expanding and contracting and, and solidifying and becoming transparent. But it certainly is not something that, uh, you know, I... I as a solid entity that should be improved. Now, explain that a little bit more, the expanding and contracting and being transparent. I get the being transparent part, but the expanding and contracting part's not clear to me. Well, uh, you know, the contracting part is uh, when there's a threat that's perceived, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, you're exposed to a large group of people and, and you have to make a presentation and you could potentially mess it up. Then there is kind of a, a little bit of fear. There's a little bit of anxiety uh, that happens. And uh, that's a contraction. And then when you're in an environment uh, where you feel accepted, uh, you know, then it just you relax and your sense of self kind of dissipates a little bit and it expands. And it includes your family. I mean, you, you lose a sense of ego when you're with people uh, that you consider your loved ones. 
Okay, Peter, we started talking about how there was this conceptual revolution 50,000 years ago where the human ego came on the scene as an evolutionary function that was obviously needed evolutionarily to accomplish certain things. And here we are, 50,000 years later, experiencing what maybe we can call a conscious revolution or an enlightenment revolution. In order for something to really be a revolution, meaning enough people are participating in it that an actual change, we cross a mark, there has to be enough humans that are participating. Do you have some idea that there's some percentage of the population that's needed, that this will happen over however many years or centuries? What's your view of this conscious revolution or enlightenment revolution that qualifies it as a quote-unquote revolution? Well, uh, you know, there, there is no simple answer, and a lot of speculation is involved, but you can uh, look back in history, uh, you know, First, there were a handful of people that uh, thought uh, women should have voting rights, uh, and today we don't discuss it anymore. Civil rights uh, half a century ago were hotly debated, and now they're you know, marginally debated and uh, it mostly accepted. The same with gender rights. Uh, and I propose that uh, this is no different. But the important thing, I think, to keep in mind is that it's intergenerational. It is not that all the human beings suddenly get struck by lightning and, and realize, oh, my God, I'm just running around with a mental self-concept. I believe that this will play itself out in culture and over generations, that the generation that's born now and is growing up now will grow up with far less of ego identification than the last generation. So, they are, I mean, social media and the way they relate to each other uh, and they grow up with, uh, you know, far more integrated and an open society than, than we did and our parents did. So I think that this revolution is not something that is, uh, you know, within a couple of years, but it's within a couple of generations. And do you have a sense, Peter, when you meet people or interact with people, a way to tell what level of ego identification they're operating from? You talked a little bit about your own experience and the shift you saw in yourself. And I'm curious when you interact with people, do you think, oh, that's somebody who's not very ego identified or, oh, that person is quite ego identified, a sort of litmus test that you use? Well, uh, you know, again, it's, it's, it's not a hardcore uh, measurement, you know. I mean, it's when people have experienced a lot of stress and so on, ego identification tends to be a little tighter. Uh, and when they had success, then it can be a little bit more loose. But generally, it plays itself out in uh, how people move, uh, how how they laugh, how light they take the events that occur. Uh, and, you know, in, in general, uh, it's a lightness. I mean, it's called enlightenment. And, and the word light in there is very significant. It's not something that, you know, you hunker down and you're defending yourself, but you open up. Uh, so openness, lightness uh, are clear indicators. Finally, Peter, our program's called Insights at the Edge. And I'm always curious what people's personal edges are. Here you're coming out with this book now after many years of research and writing. And what questions are still burning, if any, or still active inside of you as the book comes out to publication? What edge is there for you, both personally and around this work? You know, I would, would say that uh, 
human evolution uh, is mirrored in individual development. Individual development uh, has no end point. It keeps going and keeps going, and you always find a new edge. Uh, and basically, it plays itself out in what kind of threats can you uh, stay open with? What is a threat that uh, triggers you to shut down? And uh, with uh, higher degrees of conscious awareness, you're capable of handling more threats and more diverse perspectives without uh, attacking them, without defending your own one. There's more flexibility with viewpoints. And that can uh, you know, expand consistently. Uh, I, I can't see an end to the capacity to understand and sense and uh, empathize with other individual human beings. So I don't think it's a hard edge, but it's a moving uh, expansion. Wonderful. I've been speaking with Peter Bauman. He's the co-author of a new book called Ego, The Fall of the Twin Towers and the Rise of an Enlightened Humanity. And coming up, I'll be speaking with Peter's co-writer, Michael Taft, and we'll talk more about this fall of the Twin Towers and how that relates to the rise of enlightened humanity in part two of this week's Insights at the Edge. Peter, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Tammy. Wonderful to talk to you, as always. As always. (laughs) We're now going to continue our conversation about the book Ego with co-author Michael Taft. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Tammy. It's always wonderful to talk with a friend here on Insights at the Edge. We've known each other a long time. Indeed, we have. Pleasure to speak with you as well. Okay, so here we go. The subtitle of the book is The Fall of the Twin Towers and the Rise of an Enlightened Humanity help our listeners understand what the events of 9-11 have to do with the findings and the theoretical framework of the book Ego? Well, you know, it's always interesting to look at outliers because outliers give us, you know, deeper insight into kind of the unadulterated version of something. You know, if you want to really understand what a golf pro is like, you're going to look at Tiger Woods and, and you know, if you really want to understand uh, uh, about how billionaires work, you're going to look at Warren Buffett or at Bill Gates. Right? These are extreme cases, and they sort of give us the purest view of something. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about 9-11 is some of these uh, characters who are you know, um, responsible for this tragic event are really outliers in terms of uh, the ego and some of the other, you know, features of human experience that we wanted to describe. And so, you know, it's one thing to talk about how the ego works in your, you know, next door neighbor who's a regular, nice, you know, average person, but it's much more instructive to look at um, what the ego is like when it or, you know, these other features are like when they really go off the rails. So I think uh, one of the things that piqued my interest and Peter's interest in uh, 9-11 was just how extreme some of these people who did this event uh, were. 
So can you give me an example or two of what we can learn from the September 11th tragedy about how the ego functions, and then specifically this idea that it could be part of the marking of a rise of an enlightened humanity? How do we see any of this in the events of 9-11? Well, first of all, um, you know, let's talk about how the brain uh, deals with symbols and concepts. So um, one of the interesting things that happened 50,000 years ago, as you spoke with Peter about, is that you know uh, there was a there arose a new capacity in the human brain to really imagine the future and the past, to generate uh, conceptual representations in the mind, and to really do this at, at a very high level, and um, to uh, use this to predict behavior and to help us in planning. So, um, great. You know, this brought humanity uh, a lot of gifts, but it also brought us some interesting inadvertent difficulties, one of which is that, you know, animals are afraid of things that are physically present in their environment, but human beings can be afraid of things that are not physically present in their environment, but are just images in their brain. So if you're ever laying awake at night worried about work tomorrow, you're doing something no animal can do. You know, you're imagining tomorrow and sitting there worrying about it. And this is an in, you know, a, a consequence, an un, unintended side effect of our, you know, capacity to imagine. But another unintended side effect of our capacity for, you know, generating these conceptual um, constructs is that you can become uh, deathly afraid of something that's an idea. So, for example, if you've ever gotten angry because someone didn't like your ideas, you know, um, or they criticized, uh, you know, your religion or your, you know, um, country or whatever, you're getting angry about uh, somebody attacking a concept, which, of course, cannot be attacked. There's no way to hurt a concept. And so you're having a real re emotional reaction to an imaginary threat. Um, and this can go much further. In fact, it can go way too far, like it does in the case of, let's say, Muhammad Atta, the chief one of the chief architects of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. He was trained, he's an Egyptian, and he's trained as an architect, uh, and then went to Germany uh, to do further work in architecture. Um, and what's interesting with him is that he uh, wrote his master's thesis for his architecture degree about skyscrapers. And what did he write about skyscrapers? He felt that the skyscrapers in Egypt were a symbol of Western domination and contempt for Muslims, and that uh, the skyscrapers in Egypt were actually a kind of threat to his society, and that they they symbolized for him, uh, you know, everything negative about uh, Western non-Islam, uh, modern, uh, you know, modern culture, and. <clears throat> So these buildings, which are in fact, you know, agglomerations of steel and brick and concrete, to him became 
you know, a symbol of a threat. And emotionally, we did not evolve to distinguish between an actual physical threat in our environment and a conceptual threat in our mind. So it's very fascinating that for him, large buildings are uh, an existential threat and, in fact, threaten his whole society, which is another concept. But he's willing to fly a plane into a skyscraper to almost like slay the dragon. Like to him, it's it's a windmill and he's, you know, or not to him, but to us, it's a windmill and here's Don Quixote, you know, trying to take it down. And yet the threat is entirely imaginary. You know, those buildings themselves are not somehow going to destroy his culture or kill his family or, you know, um, uh, debase his religion in some way. So here you have a person, you know, who is not clearly distinguishing between, you know, uh, actual threats in the environment, that, uh, you know, and symbolic threats in the mind and is willing to kill themselves and a lot of other people in order to take down a symbol. Okay, so it's relatively intuitively obvious to me how we could look at the events of 9-11 and understand the ego gone awry. Particularly in the case of Osama bin Laden, who, you know, believed that he, you know, his involvement in uh, removing the the Soviet army from Afghanistan was very minor, and yet in his mind it was, you know, he was God's servant on earth, you know, smiting the heathen Russians. And um, uh, he actually, you know, compared himself in many ways scripturally to Muhammad and felt that he was this holy warrior who, you know, sent by God to rekindle the flame of Islam in the world. I mean, he's definitely megalomaniacal, egomaniac. Okay, so I'm with you. I think the part I'm curious about is here this is broadcasting very near the 10th anniversary of 9-11. How might we understand the events as signifying a rise of an enlightened humanity? Yeah, you know... um, I don't think necessarily 9/11 was some kind of trigger or you know you know it's more symbolic it's you can just see it's it's such a clear uh case of so many outliers where here's really you know an example of there's there's many good things about the ego we need one to function in the world but here's how this stuff can really go wrong and what's really uh, going to be overcome or potentially overcome as we continue, as humanity continues to evolve. So I see it more as like something to reflect upon and, and, and you know, deeply imbibe, you know, the understanding like, wow, this, I, how, in what ways do I uh, react as if symbolic threats are real threats? In what way do I react as if, you know, uh, these things that are really impersonal are somehow personal to me? You know, that's how uh, I understand it anyway. I think in 100 years we'll look back on these events and be like, wow, these people were crazy. You know, (laughs) they really were crazy. And um, yet 
uh, every even though the 9/11 terrorists are you know bad people who are really outliers, everyone had a tiny bit of that kind of real personal egoic, um, um, let's say, craziness. Now I know in the writing of the book that you spent quite a bit of time reviewing research, gathering research from many different fields, including neuroscience and genetics. And I'm curious what some of the research studies were that you found that were the most important to you, impactful to you, that really created life change for you. You know, I think one of the most... uh, um, There's a lot of them, Tammy. It's so fascinating, and they just continue to come in day by day. I think, uh, for me, one of the most interesting features is uh, um, something that I first encountered, actually, um, in, uh, in the first person in my own, you know, meditation experience, and then began to uh, notice a lot of research coming up about it, and that is um, the fact that uh, emotions are experienced in the body and not in the mind. Um, of course, our mind, uh, our brain triggers emotions, and we are we need the brain to be consciously aware that we're having an emotional experience. But the actual experience itself is happening in the physical body. And, you know, uh, the core of this, the origin of this is the James Lang theory. So, you know, William James, seminal American genius, the founder of, you know, American psychology, came up with the earliest version of this theory, which was a little off. He understood that they happened in the body, but he did not understand what modern cognitive neuroscience shows us, which is that, of course, there's uh, uh, the brain has to first uh, trigger the emotion. You know, it has to do evaluate the situation. For example, something dangerous, a truck is bearing down on me. The, it's the brain that recognizes that. But what we are learning more and more is that the emotional reaction itself is bodily. And this is something that also uh, Charles Darwin wrote about in his final book, which was called the, I believe it's called The Expression of Emotion in Humans and Animals. And he too understood that it's a physical expression. And um, one of the people, one of the modern people uh, to first really get some science on the ground about this was Paul Ekman, a famous emotional researcher. And he was uh, uh, a college student, a grad student in uh, the late 60s, early 70s, and coming from the work of Margaret Mead and the you know, general theory at the time, he believed, like everyone else, that emotions were socially constructed entirely. And that if you went to a very different culture, you would find that they had emotional expressions, of course, that they felt emotion, but that what those expressions were uh, was entirely socially constructed. So he went to, um, I believe it was Borneo, um, and uh, started testing the, you know, uh, uh, almost Stone Age tribes people there. He, he chose that location based on the fact that it was about as different as you could get from Western culture. And he found that, uh, like one day, um, he, uh, uh, he found that, you, that he had no problem 
at all understanding their emotional expressions. For example, one day um, he he opened a can of some American food. I, I don't know what it was, but imagine, you know, there he is with his Chef Boyardee spaghetti or whatever out of a can. And there's this, the tribes people were known as the foray. So there's this foray tribesman watching him eat this food and just the tribesman just wrinkles his nose and frowns and just the most obvious expression of total disgust, you know, and Ekman, you know, had no trouble understanding that expression. But so that's anecdotal, but then he did do a lot of tests with movies and photographs and over and over and over again over many years, showing that these people's emotional expressions, their physical expressions were uh, utterly understandable. And we have a lot of new research that backs this up. For example, if you take um, judo athletes at the Paralympics or, who are blind, so, you, you know, uh, they're blind from birth. They've never seen another human being. And yet when they win, they puff out their chest and they throw up their arms and in a, in a physical display of pride and joy that anyone can understand. And yet they've never seen another human being do that. So, uh, and, and when they lose, their, their shoulders slump and their head hangs and everyone can tell that they feel bad about it. So, um, you know, this really brought home the idea to me that... Um, that in our culture we feel somehow that emotions are concepts, that they're ideas in our head, and that we, uh, you know, cognitive um, psychology really tries to have this, as, you know, put this forth as an agenda that, you know, we decide which emotions we're going to have in this really almost, you know, conscious way, rational way, and then go ahead and have them. But that is um, absolutely not the case. They're physical and when um, this became stunningly clear to me, both through my own experience and through the research that I'm describing and a lot of other research, um, it gives you a new relationship with your emotions that is so powerful. I mean, they're not somehow, um, A, they're not somehow um, uh, uh a thing that you're tr necessarily thinking of as intensely personal and intensely uh, indicative of who I am as a as a person, as an identity. Instead, they are uh, uh, almost mechanical reactions programmed by evolution uh, that are there to, you know, uh, intended to guide my behavior and. It, it takes away, this understanding takes away the sting of, you know, like Peter was talking about how uh, lately he doesn't feel as embarrassed, or if it does come up, it just doesn't stick in the same way. And, I, you know, I really understand what he means. It's like it arises because that's the evolutionarily programmed reaction, but it just kind of dissolves because you're not experiencing it as you know, who I am, or some, you know, this is my personal emotional reaction that I've decided to have. Um, instead, it's like, well, you know, my lungs breathe, and my liver filters my blood, and my stomach digests, and I have emotional reactions.
So we could imagine someone, let's say, getting very angry about something, so angry that their whole body is, you know, inflamed. They could even be shaking in anger. Their fists could be shaking. Your eyes narrow and your forehead, you know, scrunches together and your chest puffs up and your arms move forward. And I mean, it's incredibly, it's a huge physical reaction. Right. So I'm with you on that. I think the part where you're saying that it's not, quote unquote, personal, I mean, this organism is going through convulsions of red hot uh, flames. Yes. So there's something but happening to you, that. Yeah. But when you think of it as uh, the way our society does, as a as a as a rational decision that you've made, or at least a, a, a decision, rational or not, that you've come to in your mind and decided to move forward with, you. you you take responsibility for it in a way that is not helpful. I mean, it is your responsibility in the long run, the actions you make when you are angry. But to see that it's just, hey, that's what happens. You know, someone violates your boundaries in some way and you have this physical reaction. It's it's not, um, you know, uh, we have a, a, a romantic idea that it's somehow this, a profound indication of your spirit, of who you are, that you would be reactive to one thing and not another. And uh, instead, the, the, the understanding here, and it's a very visceral in your body understanding, is like, you know, these things come and go all the time, and it's just part of being in a human body or being a human organism. Yeah, I think the phrase that you use, that there's not as much stickiness, that made a lot of sense to me, that there's sort of physical processing that has to run its course, but it just runs its course at the physiological level. Yeah, and, you know, you're aware of it, and and yet um, it's just no big deal. So I found that uh, very uh, personally um, helpful and profoundly life-changing, and, you know... um, it's not the most obvious idea. I mean, as I go around talking to people about it, they're, they're usually almost stymied at first. You know, what? Yeah, emotions are in my body. So I, I think, and I, that was my reaction as well, you know, so I, I think it's a, a, one of the, the new things that we're learning. Now, I wanted to read a quote to you from the book Ego and hear you respond to it. This comes from a section of the book towards the end. Here we go. As more individuals begin to see beyond the confines of their own cramped ego prison, society as a whole will evolve one of the most exciting shifts it has ever made, giving up the illusion of control as the most adaptive way forward. Uh, And you want me to just respond to this? Yeah, this idea of giving up the illusion of control, that this would be one of the most exciting shifts we've ever made. What does it mean to give up the illusion of control? So, you know, this is um, coming from a study that was done in Germany in the mid-60s where they discovered a thing called Bereitschaft Potential, which I'm mispronouncing, but it means readiness potential. And it showed that um, the brain sends a signal before the body takes action. Okay, And the signals vary distinct. It doesn't look like any other signal. They can all they can see the signal, readiness potential, and they know in a few uh, hundred milliseconds the body's going to do something. And uh, then a famous researcher named Labette 
took that readiness potential uh, signal and started testing people about when they de said they decided to do something. So he was, you know, comparing those two events when their brain signaled that they were going to do something and then when they said they had decided to do it. And what he found was that the signal that they were going to do something occurred quite a bit earlier than when they said they decided to do it. So that was a controversial uh, finding. But in the like 30 or more years since that original finding, they have refined it and refined it and refined it with much more research. And the original um, conclusion remains, and that is that the you who thinks you're deciding to do things is not really who's deciding to do things. You know, the brain itself, it's still you as an organism. Your organism is deciding to take action. But the self that thinks it's deciding to take action is an illusion generated many milliseconds later. So, or the, the decision is generated many milliseconds later, the illusory decision. And so uh, as people, you know, um, begin to expand beyond the understanding of a personal ego into what we would call a post-personal understanding where you see the ego function as just something that is a naturally occurring thing in your body and in your organism, but it's not you as, a, as an identity, as an entity. Um, as that occurs, as, that, as, as more and more people in society have that experience, this kind of uh, grim, overwhelming angst and pressure about the decisions you're making um, uh, begins to lighten up and open up and will potentially begin to do that in society as well, where we just understand, look, we're making decisions here, but it's not such a fretful, tense, difficult thing, because actually the self isn't doing it anyway, the organism is doing it. Can you help me understand when you say the organism's doing it, what that means? Yeah, it's simple, Tammy. Um, I mean you, Tammy Simon, the body, brain, animal thing that's standing there, rather than you, Tammy Simon, the ego which is a mental construct occurring, right. you know. It's the difference between the person playing a video game, you know, the body that eats and is playing a video game and the, you know, three-dimensional representation of a character in that video game, you know. There's a, a big difference. So it's just that our language doesn't support making that distinction very easily, you know. So we have to keep using this odd term, you know, the organism. But we just mean you, the animal, you, the body-mind system. But the body-mind system makes decisions. Yes. But the value of distinguishing that from the ego making the decisions, can you help me understand that? Well, yeah, it's a big value. First of all, um, it's well known in uh, in creativity research. You know, what's the best way to be to get a new creative idea? Is it to sit there and try to come up with one as hard as you can, 
Or is it much better to just let go and go do something else and the idea will pop into your head? And again and again, you know, the conclusion is let go, do something else, and the idea will pop into your head. Why? Because creative ideas are not coming from the sense of, you know, working real hard to come up with a creative idea. It's the brain, the, the, the parallel processing, you know, full brain that has the massive computing ability to come up with that stuff. So you just got to get out of its way and let it do that. So um, one of the big benefits is we can be much, much more creative. Um, another one is uh, uh, what would be called in spiritual traditions the wisdom mind. I mean, what is the wisdom mind? Uh, the wisdom mind is nothing else but getting out of, letting the ego completely get out of the way of, you know, that huge background brain doing its processing. You know, which comes up with ideas that are, you might say, spiritually creative, insights into who you really are and what's, you know, uh, the nature of your experience. Just one final question, Michael. It seems that in the research that you're doing in the writing, you're right now in the nexus, living in the nexus of so many new fields that are coming together for the first time, new fields of both soft and hard scientific inquiry into this function of how we work. What is it that's most exciting for you personally in the inquiries that you're doing? What is it that's really driving you? I think it's my personal experience with these understandings. Um, It's you know, one thing to kind of read all this research, and it's very fascinating, and it gives us tremendous traction. I mean, you can really, you know, do some things with these ideas. Um, But as long as they remain just ideas or concepts, there is a kind of a uh, almost junk food quality, like you can just eat a bag of potato chips. You can just sit there and read endless research about the brain is like this or, you know, human beings evolved like that. But when you really start to get how it affects your day-to-day experience, what it means for your relationship with your, you know, partner, what it means for how you work with other people, what it means for your health or your, you know, experience of walking outside and looking at the trees and feeling the, you know, breeze in the air, or even what, is it, what it means for your own experience of what we feel is the most intimate parts within ourselves, our spiritual, you know, being, or our, you know, what it means for my, um, my you know, you might say soul. Uh, that's where it gets really exciting. It's the application to my own experience that really turns me on. Just on that note, You've spoken a little bit, but I'm curious what application would be the most intriguing to you right now in your own life in terms of whatever is important to you right now? Well, there are many. I mean, I mentioned one that comes up constantly is the emotional one. You know, that's emotions can run our lives, you know, and in fact, they're intended to. But when you, you know, understand, you have this different understanding and physical experience of where they're coming from it's 
it's a very different kind of relationship. But beyond that, the one that I just never get over is the understanding that the ego is not an entity, that it is not, um, there's not a little person inside you, you know. It's a construct. And, you know, I can, we can have that um, understanding very early. It's an easy idea to get a hold of. But once you're having the experience of that in your body, uh, in your uh, own processing and experience of thinking and emotion and bodily sensation and external sight and sound and seeing moment by moment the ego, you know, being constructed and then, you know, in a new moment being constructed again and then passing by and then the next moment being constructed again and passing by and having uh, a functional reality but not a solid, um, reified, you know, thingness to it. Uh, that experience is not something uh, uh, I would say is uh, trivial. That's a very important, deep, and for me, just very fulfilling and amazing and endlessly fascinating, you know, experience. Wonderful. I've been talking with Michael Taft. He's the co-author of the book Ego, The Fall of the Twin Towers and the Rise of an Enlightened Humanity. It's a book from Natural Enlightenment Press that's being distributed by Sounds True. Michael, thank you. Thanks for speaking with us. Thanks, Tammy Simon. Always a pleasure. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.